Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. Hey everyone, it's Josh here. Just wanted to let you know that if you have come to listen to the third part of our three-part college series focused on helping students prepare for their futures as leaders, that episode is actually not going to air until next week. But you're in luck because this week's interview with Jim Ramos of Men in the Arena is a great one. So by all means, come back next week to hear our final installment in the college series. But go ahead and stick around for this episode because I think you're really going to enjoy it. You're listening to the Life as Leadership Podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership Podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. Our guest is Jim Ramos, who leads a nonprofit organization called Men in the Arena. In addition to talking about the work he does, we go into the importance of mission, humility and leadership, and who your MVP needs to be. Joining me to listen to and discuss the interview this week are my friends and fellow leaders, Maria Hardiman and Parker Batista. So the question I want to start off today is related to something that Jim talks about a lot on his podcast called Men in the Arena. He talks about the anonymous bleachers. So has there ever been a time in your life where you have been someone who is on the sidelines? And that could be something that's literal or, or figurative. So, Parker, any, anything come to mind? Yeah, um, several stories come to mind. The first one being a sports example and when I had surgery and just had to sit on the sidelines and figure out what my role was there because it definitely wasn't on the field. But a more real example, I think, that comes to mind is early on in college where I don't – I feel like I was on the sidelines, um, not taking ownership for my life, my decisions – uh, the path that I'd been through and the current decisions I was making and did not feel like I had an active role in my life. And that's more of what Jim's talking about. The anonymous bleachers are a place where people choose to be mm-hmm. or at least can choose to leave and become men in the arena. Maria, anything come to mind for you? So recently in my life, I wanted to take a moment and just sit on the sidelines and opt out and say, let me just see what is going to happen next in my life. But I had a dear friend of mine who is really sweet and she said, I have a job for you and you're going to do it. So you can start in a couple of days. And she really didn't give me an option to opt out. So um, it's, I would have liked to have thought about it a little bit longer, but it was clear that that's what I needed to do. So And so you are no longer in the anonymous bleachers, but are actively involved, huh? It lasted for like like a month, maybe, but then I had to get back to work. So Well, I don't want to get too deep too fast, but why is it, do you think, that we like to be in the anonymous bleachers as opposed to in the arena and in the action? I know for me... It did feel like relief from responsibility for a little bit, and I could just enjoy and observe others, you know, stepping up and doing whatever it is that they needed to do in the moment. Hmm. Yeah, and you want to be able to empower people. That's another important thing. You don't Mm -hmm. want to hold people back with with your actions. At the same time, uh, oftentimes you can call other people to join with you in what you're doing. Yeah, I think being in the arena requires risk, and -hmm. it's easy to be in the anonymous bleachers, um, but that's the most dangerous place to be. Well. 
Jim Ramos is the founder of Men in the Arena, which is a Christian nonprofit organization with an international reach that seeks to help men become the best version of themselves. Because, as Jim says, when a man gets it, everybody wins. He has written nine books on the topic of manhood, including The Man Card, Five Characteristics Separating Men from Boys. He is also the host of the Men in the Arena podcast, where he interviews experts in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Here is Jim. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, man. I'm just humbled and honored that you would bring me on your show, so thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. I want to start off today by hearing from you a little bit about your mission with Men in the Arena and the books that you've written as we start off today. Yeah, hey, we are all about building an army of men. We focus on men. Uh, even though we love women, we we believe in women, we empower women, we think women should do whatever God is telling them to do. We just really want strong women in the game. So I want to say that to you up front because I know you have a mixed audience. But but what we do is we focus on building an army of men in the arena is our, is our word picture for men. We want them to get in the arena. And so we want those guys to get in the arena because we and we want them to become the best version of themselves. Because when they do that, they will change their world. And statistically, we know that when a man is absent, everybody around him is highly affected. And so when that man gets in the arena, he changes the world in which he lives. And we, our, our uh, tagline is, we just believe when a man gets it, everyone wins. And so we are all about casting that vision and uh, changing a culture. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that line, the line, when a man gets it, everybody wins. Yes. It seems like something that could come across as controversial these days. First of all, is it meant to be controversial? And second, why do you think it's true? Well, it's true because conversely, so, you know, I had a guy on our podcast, and a friend of mine, Wes Stafford, he was the president of Compassion International for 20 years, took them to a budget of annual budget of $950 million and uh, reaching 2.4 million children around the world. And Wes has said this, if you fix the men, you fix 80% of the world's problems. And if you look at the pain in our country today, 80 to 90% of that pain is caused by men. So if we are so willing and quick to vilify men, then men must also be the solution. If we fix the men, we fix the problem, mostly. And so we uh, are, are very, we are not you know, misogynistic. We are not chauvinistic. We really believe in women and empowering women. I have a professional wife who's a working woman. I am the main cook in our household type of thing. And so, you know, we share the load. So we are not traditional in any sense. Our kids were public schooled, all this stuff. But we really believe that if you can fix the men and statistically, you know, children in divorced homes have a higher probability of, you know, repeating grades, uh, having psychological issues. Kids with, uh, I think going to prison, 80% of prisoners are fatherless. So fatherlessness is a huge statistical problem in our country. And if you can fix the fathers and the men and you change that culture, you will change the world in which those men live. It's just, it's an objective truth. It's not subjective. People like to get emotional about it, but let's look at it objectively. And we would acknowledge that men have been the problem, but men are also the solution. It's logical. So uh, we just go after the men, and we know if we can help the men, we're going to help their marriages, we're going to help their kids, we're going to help their communities. One of the ways that you differentiate in your podcast is talking about men versus males. Talk about the separation there. Well, you know, there's a phrase, a political phrase floating around right now called toxic masculinity. And if you look at that phrase, and if you go into any dictionary and you look up the word masculinity, masculinity is defined as 
doing things appropriate to manhood. And so a man who does things appropriate to manhood is never toxic. He, he's what we're after. It's the guys that are not doing things appropriate to manhood that are toxic. We call these males. You know, uh, we have some misconceptions in our society, and this is in my book, The Man Card, that if I'm, if I'm financially well off, I'm a man. Well, we know that's not true because Jesus never had a home. You know, or we say, well, because I'm biologically uh, a man, you know, they, you know, I can, I can appease standing up, so to speak, you know, type of thing. You know, well, that doesn't just because you have pubic hair and armpit hair does not make you a man because we see childish behavior all around. And so our, our thing is we believe that a man is as a man does. Manhood is not defined by physiological, biological, or even uh, sociological uh, issues. Manhood is defined by what that man does. It's an ethics thing. And so when we look at males, we say if a male is acting toxic, he is not a man. A man is as a man does. So another term that you use is the anonymous bleachers. Yeah. <laughs> what is it that gets people stuck there? And how do people get out of the bleachers and into the arena like you talk about? Well, I think there's a couple things. One of the things is I think some guys just don't know. They had a, a, a father who was a horrible model, who lived uh, on the couch all of his life, who was not engaged. A lot of these, uh, you know, 40% of children are born out of wedlock today. And 50, and, and listen to this one, here's a statistic. Half of children from divorce won't see their dad for an entire year. So these, so many children today are growing up in fatherless homes. They have no model. And so as these, these young men grow into adulthood and have families, they don't know what they're supposed to do. So part of it is nobody's telling them what to do. And so I think another part of it is we have a lot of guys in our society who quite frankly are males. They are, they are immature, they are toxic, uh, they are unwilling to give. And so they stay in the bleachers while the chosen few, this mysterious group of guys that we call men are in the arena, you know, serving their children and loving their wives and, and making their communities better. And, uh, and I think a lot of what we see today goes back to kind of the Pareto principle that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I think that's true in manhood. I think that's true in womanhood. I think that's true in society. One of the things that you focus on in your ministry is that you, you get men into groups, and that could be online or in person. Yes. But you see a benefit of gender-specific groups. Yes. What do you see as the main benefits for these? Yeah, you know, one out of every 18 men in our country is not involved in any kind of men's group. One out of seven in the church is not involved in any kind of men's group. And uh, I love co-ed or gender blended groups. I think they're really healthy, especially in the context of marriage, you know, couple, couples groups. But I think that men have issues that, uh, and so do women, but we as genders being different have issues that the other gender doesn't necessarily deal with or relate to. And so getting men in a room dealing with issues that men really struggle with and work around, work with, that, that is so powerful because they can share things they wouldn't be able to share in a room that with mixed company. So this might be getting a little bit outside of your expertise, but do you have a feeling as to whether or not women do a better job of getting into groups like this than men do? Oh, by women are so exceptional in this. It's just, I, I envy women. I envy how their brains think, you know, men, we're great at focus. Women are masters of multitasking. When a man has a hard time, his default is isolation. Where when women have a hard time in life, their default is relationships. And so getting women involved in groups happens naturally. They naturally gravitate there. 
where men naturally gravitate towards the garage or their man cave or isolation. And so, uh, and because of this, I think men have uh, hamstrung themselves. It's been an Achilles heel for men. Yeah. So I'm wondering, can you think of times where getting into these gender specific groups can begin to cause more problems or become more unhelpful than beneficial? Well, I think it can be harmful if the if the men never interact in a healthy manner with their wives and and use their their group. And this is the same with women. Uh, you, we see this, you know, book clubs and these various things that women are involved with. You know, if if it becomes a female bashing thing or a male bashing thing, one of the things we like to tell guys is how are you framing your wife to other men? If you are framing her negatively, that is toxic. That is not healthy for her or the marriage. The same thing with women. If you are framing your husband in a toxic way, that is not healthy for the marriage. And so sometimes these groups can become groups with guys whining or complaining. Not our groups, hopefully, but you know where they complain about their wives and they paint an inappropriate, unhealthy picture of their wives instead of painting a very strong picture and image of their wives. I want to transition to talking about your organization and your leadership. Yeah. When starting a cause-driven organization like Men in the Arena is, you can either go the business route or the nonprofit route. Could you talk about your decision to be a nonprofit organization? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of people out there that that have to come up with a similar decision. And so our our process was something like this. We came to a crossroads where, hey, we're going to start a nonprofit organization for men. So now the issue is do we create a nonprofit faith-based organization for men or do we create a nonprofit business model or for-profit, I guess it would be a um, non-faith-based for men. And so for us, we went with the the faith-based nonprofit knowing that if we went with like a business model, uh, a for-profit business or a nonprofit non-faith-based if you go non-faith-based, there's a lot of government grants out there that you can get. If you go with a for-profit, now you're you're reselling a product. Well, we aren't selling a product. We're selling a cause. So because we're selling a cause, we felt like, hey, we really need to be non-profit because we're selling a cause, not a product. And the products that we do sell do not go to Jim Ramos. I wrote nine books, but the money always goes to The Great Hunt for God, and I get paid out of that fund. Um, my speaking fees go in, they, they go to The Great Hunt for God, or The Men in the Arena is the uh, doing business as term, and I don't get paid directly for that. Now, we realize going faith-based, now we've just cut out all of our government funding. <laughs> you know, Now we've just went from this 100% of humanity to this niche of people out there that we call Christians. But we went with that model because we really believe that God is calling us to reach men for Christ and uh, to help men grow in their faith. And because we did that, we wanted to be unapologetic about that. And so we went that route knowing that that gave us this small niche in our society and really hindered us from the greater whole. But as my son recently told me on a hunting trip, Dad, you don't really care about money, do you? And I said, you know what I do? I love money. (laughs) It's really fun. But, man, you know, I, I love money. But no, money does not motivate me. Uh, I'm motivated by my my mission and my cause, and uh, I'm not going to let uh, anything hinder that. And so we went we went with the nonprofit faith based because that was the our audience that we were going after, and we wanted to have integrity as an organization. The other thing I want to say is this: uh, is that we wanted to stay mission true. And so a lot of these organizations, if you go back and you track a lot of these organizations like a YMCA. You know, YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, 
that thing, they've lost everything now except for the why. And I think that's funny. It's just the why now. And I ask the question, why? Why did you do what you've done? You know, and, and they've lost, they drifted away from their mission. And so I have a, a several friends who have, uh, who are Christian friends who have non-faith-based, they have non-faith-based ministries, organizations. The problem with that is you can't stay mission true over time. In other words, their organization will die after they are gone or after they let it go. Where ours, we want to maintain mission. We want to maintain mission integrity. And so if we come out at the get-go and say, here's who we are and here's what we stand for. In fact, every board meeting we have, Josh, we recite our mission and we say we have to as a board 100% agree that this is still where we are at because we want to stay mission true. And we can never change our mission statement unless we have an, a unanimous vote three meetings in a row. So we want to hold mission true. Uh, so we have staying power over time. Yeah, that's really cool. That's got to be something that really instills confidence in the people who are involved in the organization. One of the things worth asking at this point is, okay, you're committed to maintaining this mission, but one thing that a lot of people deal with as they're starting out is, what is my mission in the first place? Yes. So whether people are focused on serving men or serving Christians or serving entirely different groups of people, do you have any recommendations based on your own experience for how to figure out what your mission is in the first place? You know, you know what? And we, we are coming up on seven years as an organization, and we actually did change our mission several years back. And uh, the reason why we changed it was twofold. One was a young organization is in an evolution process. And so early on, we realized uh, our, our, our first four words never changed. Our first three words, trusting Jesus Christ, has never changed. So that was critical to our ministry from the get-go. But what we realized is our original mission, our original why, you know, W-H-Y, our, our passion, that really shifted when we realized uh, we aren't going to be able to have ministry success if we go through that mission or that method. So we shifted. And so for us, there was a small evolution process. So our why has never changed, which is really trusting Jesus Christ to change the lives of men. But our what has really shifted, which is our method, how we get there. And so, uh, yeah, there is an evolutionary process to it, but the passion behind it and the why uh, remains the same. And I think that's what leaders should ask themselves when they start a business. Why are you doing this? If, you're, if your goal is to make money, I would say you may not be the kind of leader that you should be. Your why needs to be bigger than that. Like Apple, their why is to create is something like this. It's to create cutting edge technology. It's, it's something like that, that they always want to be on the cutting edge of technology. So it's not that they're selling products, which they do a great job doing, but they really, their whole why, the passion behind the organization is creating cutting edge technology. You know, um, and Nike's the same way. Theirs is all about having the best athletic wear. It's not a shoe company. So, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, what is your why? What is your passion? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? And that's, that's really what we try to do. And one of the things that you do, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, is that you have a fairly strong online community with a significant presence on Facebook. I think you're pushing almost 10,000 members these days. I'm wondering what are some keys to developing these online relationships effectively so that they actually have the impact that you intend for them to have? Yeah, you know, uh, because we're a Christian organization that makes us unique, I think, uh, which does limit who will be part of our tribe, as Seth Godin would say. But what we decided, we don't have a church or denomination backing us, so we had to start to build our tribe somewhere. So we went with our podcast, 
and uh, our podcast uh, quadrupled after our first year, and this year it's going to double that. So we're on we're on task to be you know in the hundred thousand download range after two two and a half years of our podcast. So we are we tried to build our army of men through uh, different means, and we felt like social media was the way to go because it is free. We can develop a following, and we can also. Uh, equip those guys uh, regularly. So when I say social media, realize I'm also including email. So we can get guys, uh, we have a thousand guys, thousands of guys that receive our weekly equipping blast that just equips our men. So we pull our men into our army through our forum, and then we equip them through our other means, which would be small groups or our equipping blast or you know having me coming and speaking at their uh, organization. And so there, you can't just leave it as an online community because that won't get you where you need to take your men. Yeah, so you mentioned email. That's one thing I see popping up more and more. I think we focus so much on social media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that we kind of view email as old-fashioned. But I hear more and more business leaders and organizations talking about the importance of email. What is it that you use email for, and why is it so important for your ministry? Yeah, we had a major shift about a year ago, actually, because I had I had this intuition that Facebook, for example, was going to – I couldn't trust them, you know? And uh, we had 11,000 men on our Facebook forum. Now, when I say 11,000 men, realize it's a group inside of our main page. So this group is non-promotable. We can't promote it. We can't buy ads. It has, has to grow organic. So within a year, it grew to 11,000 men, and overnight – we went down to 7,000 because Facebook purged those guys that weren't active, active enough. And I realized then that we can't trust social media. And I began to interact with some organizations that are really crushing it right now. You know, Exo Mountain Gear, they make backpacks for hunting. These guys are crushing it right now. But I went, I flew out to St. Louis and met with their marketing guy. And he said, listen, don't trust social media. Email is and will always be king. Email has not changed. Everybody Yes, even the millennials have email accounts. So if you want to if you want to equip your men and you want to do it in a way that you can get it out to all the these guys and nobody can regulate it or deregulate it, you need to go email. And so we started an equipping blast that men sign up for and it really really has exploded. And the other thing that we did with that is we realized this. Even though we are cause or mission driven, the MVP of men in the arena is not the mission. It's every man who gets out of the bleachers and gets in the arena and starts loving his wife and starts loving his kids and starts serving his family and starts serving his community. So we want to help those guys. They are the MVPs that make it all work. So this equipping blast is our way of doing that. And so every week we send out an equipping blast that involves our, includes our blog that I write, both our podcast episodes, uh, a coaching tip for our guys running small groups, and, and uh, different links, and we have an action item every week, a boots-on-the-ground item every week. We ask guys to, hey, here's your, here's your action item. Here's your assignment this week. And so we really just want to equip these guys. And so that's what we have used, and what it's become is it's the number one way that men respond back to us now is through that email, through that equipping blast. So we're getting great responses from that, and it really is working well. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm committed. I think it'll be around in 20 years. I don't think Facebook will. So, so listeners, pay attention to what Jim just said. <laughs> Your MVP is not you. It's not maybe even the people who are working for you. It's the people that you and your organization are serving. And if you remember that, you're likely to have success in whatever you're doing. Yeah. 
yeah, I think I think a lot of guys get egocentric. Uh, you know, it's about me. It's about me making money. It's uh, it's about my product. It's the best. And if, if guys would, if guys, when I mean guys, I mean guys and gals, women, people. If people would think about the consumer, and and without the consumer, they have no product. So what can you do that is not some kind of bait and switch deal? You know, go online get this free thing, and then you you, you screw them over in the process. You know, what is this thing that you can do to make your – so let me give you an example. Exo Mountain Gear, they make backpacks for hunters. That's their niche. It's a very small niche. But when I bought the backpack – I bought a backpack from them, and when I got a backpack from them, they added me into this email blast, and I get an, an email blast every week about how to be a better hunter. And when I bought the backpack for four weeks in a row, I had emails – an email, a video from YouTube sent through email – Here's how you should pack your pack. Here's how you should do this. It had nothing to do with selling me more product or upselling me. It was all about, okay, Jim, thanks for buying our product. Here's how we want to help you to be a more effective backcountry hunter. And I thought, man, how refreshing to have an organization do that. And I never get junk mail from them. I just get stuff to help me. And what they've done is they've made me the MVP, and I appreciate it. In your book, The Man Card, you write about yeah. five characteristics that separate men from boys. First, protecting integrity, yes. fighting apathy, pursuing God passionately, leading courageously, and finishing strong. Yes. Which of these do you think, as you look at young people around you today, which do you think young people struggle with the most? Young people. Well, I'll tell you what I would say. I think the foundational, if you imagine those five things as a, as a mountain climb, I'm a mountain, I'm a mountain guy, I'm a backpacker. So if you imagine the climb as being protected, integrity is the trailhead, fighting apathy is the climb portion, pursuing God passionately is the summit, leading courageously is the the descent, and then the trails end is finishing strong. You aren't even on the mountain unless you have integrity. And let me say this. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what your what your gender is. I don't care you know, where you live in the country or in the world. I don't care if you're red, yellow, pink, blue, brown. I don't care what color you are. But I'm going to tell you something. If you don't have integrity, you lack the foundational components to being a quality human being in this world. I'll tell you, I don't know any quality human who raises his kids up to be, I want my little, little junior to be a drug addict, to be a prisoner, to be a thief, to be a liar. People just don't raise their kids that way. At least good people don't. And so that, 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 that issue of integrity is so tantamount to the success and to a man or a woman stepping into life as their best version. You just, it's just not worth taking the shortcut. It's not worth it. But, you know, uh, Vonda Bright once said, the longest distance between two points is a shortcut. And what she was saying is nothing is worth your integrity. And so I just think for young people, man, especially young people, because they're fighting to get ahead. You know, they're in a, a system where they're young and they got to pay their dues and they don't have the respect. They haven't earned it like the older people do. Man, but I'll tell you what, there's nothing that's more respected from a guy my age. I'm 53, looking at a 28-year-old as, as a man or a woman who functions with integrity and honor and they aren't putting people down to get their way up to the top, but they're, they're just working their butts off. They're not crying about a living wage. They're just getting it done. They've got integrity and honor and honesty. And I know when I ask them to do something, it's going to be done. And I'll tell you what, it's got to be protecting. And here's the deal. We use the adjective or the, the verb protecting because you need to protect it every day. You can be a great quality employee or human being on one day. And the next day, it all can crumble. So it's a daily progressive battle to maintain our integrity compounded over life. 
Jim, you've been on a roll, so I want to open it up to you real quick. Any final thoughts on leadership that you think are worth covering for the listeners? Yeah, I would just say, uh, you know, there there is a misconception, I think, sometimes among leaders that uh, leading is being in charge of something. And I think, you know, a lot, a lot of government positions, for example, I'm, a, I'm in charge of a classroom or I'm in charge of this. And, and that's positional leadership. Uh, we, we miss and in the church. We think, oh, if I run a group or if I'm in charge of this, I'm a leader. No, you know, a lot of there have been some leadership guys in the church that have come along and, and really hurt the leadership definition. So I would just say leadership, it, that's a man or a woman who has a vision for something that they are driving. It's something that they see that others don't see, and they are bringing people along with them to accomplish that vision. So as John Maxwell once said, leaders know the way, go the way, and show the way. And I would couple that by saying this, Josh, that contrary to what people think, leaders are humble. They're humble people. The greatest leaders out there I have met and I've interviewed uh, and I've interacted with are humble men and women who are driven with a mission goal, or they have a will to succeed in their in their organization, but they're humble in their personality. And a great reference for that would be uh, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. And in that book, he talks about the level five leader. So there are five levels, and the top one, the lowest one is that positional leader I told you about. The top level is a level five leader. These are the, these are the best of the best. These are the cream of the crop. These are the ones that their organizations went far and above others and in that, in his research, they discovered that a level five leader was, and I'm going to quote this for you here, page 21 of his book, an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. This is an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. He says, we found leaders of this type at the helm of every good to great company during the transition era. And so this is a critical for young leaders that they have to be men and women who walk in humility. They're willing to serve others. They're willing to look out the window when there's a success in the organization and look in the mirror when there's a failure. That, that is key. Jocko Willink wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And I would say that that book, in that book, he really exemplifies how a leader deals with victory and failure. And so I would highly recommend those two books to your listeners. Well, Jim, thank you so much for sharing your mission with us and your leadership insight. Yeah. Before we finish up, I have a few final questions that are meant to inspire us toward better leadership. You ready? Sure. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Oh, well, my mantra is that, especially with a startup causal or missional company, uh, my, my mantra for life is this. You don't have to be the best. You simply have to outlast the rest. And, I, and, and basically, it's just don't ever give up on what you believe in. Hang in there. We live in a society that's highly transient. Uh, we, you know, we, can, we can follow relationships, just remove the thumb off that social media page or onto another relationship. I would just say, man, stay in the game. Pay your dues. Don't give up. Outlast the rest. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A visionary, a learner, and a person of great humility. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? What is out there that I'm not seeing? What book would you recommend to leaders? Uh, I'll tell you what, I just did it. Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, is good. I think Jocko Willink wrote a book, Extreme Ownership. Neither of these books are Christian books, so don't get nervous. (laughs) And so, uh, and I'll tell you what, the leadership, here's a Christian book that was really impacting to me. 
the leadership of Billy Graham. Now, I've read about 300 leadership books over my life, and that leadership of Billy Graham is really, really exemplary. Marshall Shelley wrote it. I recommend those three books. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that be? Love people. And finally, an arbitrary but insightful question. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Oh, man, that's a good one. I would say why not. And then I say the second question to ask would be who. Uh, I think a great leader doesn't ask how, but they ask who. Who can help me with this? Not how do we ever do this? So, you know, it's always it's always something that we can solve. We just need to find the right person and we need to find the right passion behind it. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing with us your expertise. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah. Hey, meninthearena.org is our website. We're actually under construction right now. We're building a brand new one, but that'd be the best way for them to get a hold of me. And uh, for if, they're, if their guys are listening out there, check out the Men in the Arena podcast. Well, Jim, it's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks so much, Josh. Appreciate it. I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share some of your own thoughts on what you heard today, or if you want to leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at lifeasleadership.com. And if you think today's interview could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.